stillness. Look and look again. This world is not just a little thrill for the eyes. You have a life. Just imagine that. You have this day and maybe another and maybe still another. Mary Oliver Busy days and rain falling, chasing my tail and going nowhere. Horizons closing in, boring routines and putting away the weekly shop. So, when I got an opportunity to escape, I bolted for the woods that the random number generator ordered me towards. I bustled around, grabbing my camera, rain gear and thermos flask. I sloshed a can of tomato soup into a pan, added a tin of chickpeas, a handful of frozen peas and sweet corn and a glug of chilli sauce. By the time I was swaddled in waterproofs, my improvised lunch was hot and I was out the door and onto my bike with a smile returning to my face. I ducked out of the rain into a beechwood. The trunks were slick and black and the dark mesh of silhouetted branches was stark and tangled against the grey sky. Dead leaves had blown into heaps around the old parish boundary marker stone. But for the first time, there were also signs of rebirth. Soft green moss squelched as I walked over it. One of 20,000 species that have been absorbing moisture, colonising new land and regulating temperatures for 450 million years. Primrose shoots peaked out of the ground. The name of the flower deriving from the Latin prima rosa, meaning the first rose of the season. The world was beginning to wake from its hibernation. I'd been out planting trees over the weekend with trees for cities, and my shoulders still nursed a satisfying ache from the work. Walking through woods on a sunlit summer morning is a pleasant experience, a simple hedonic enjoyment. But grafting away in winter to plant dozens of trees that eventually will become a wood worth walking through generates what is called a eudaimonic happiness, as it is also filled with meaning and purpose. Combining hedonic and eudaimonic happiness has the maximum impact on your levels of nature connectedness, as well as making a positive impact on society. When I entered the woods, I had passed various threatening signs hammered to trees, shotgun pocked and rusty. No trespassing, danger, shooting, keep out. I was still in the early stages of this project, but already the amount of land I was forbidden from exploring was riling me. Compared with most people, I suspect I have a relaxed attitude to access laws. I grew up in a village in the Yorkshire Dales and spent my childhood roaming the fields and woods and rivers with my brother and our two best friends, who were farmer's sons. We didn't leave litter or start fires. We didn't knock down walls or harass livestock. Of course we didn't. But we did explore absolutely everywhere. And nobody minded. I'm looking at the Ordnance Survey map of that village as I write these words and it seems strange to see it all laid out formally with just a few dotted green lines of public footpaths allocating the limits of where my childhood should have been technically allowed to roam. I would know that landscape so much less and care for it less and have missed out on all that fun had we heeded those restrictions. 
From Yorkshire's green hills, I moved on to university in the emptier landscapes of Scotland. There were official footpaths there too, and I was thankful for them on the difficult ankle-twisting terrain of Rannock Moor or the steep valleys leading to the mountains around Torridon. The difference is that those paths helped me to access the places I wanted to explore rather than restraining me from all the places I was not allowed to go. Scotland has much wider access rights than England, so long as you exercise them sensibly and don't do daft stuff like walking through crops or gardens. While Scotland enjoys an outdoor access code that gives people a right to roam responsibly, 92% of England's and Wales's landscape is out of bounds for most of its population, and not many rivers have an uncontested right of access for swimmers. Almost everywhere in the country, you are a trespasser risking expulsion if you amble through a wood or paddle in a stream. It strikes me as ridiculous that once upon a time somebody declared, This wood is now mine, this lake and this hillside too. I am claiming it. You may not come here anymore. Get off my land. Nobody owned woods or lakes or hills until the day they were first claimed by someone richer or more powerful than their neighbour. There is an injustice and an absurdity to being excluded from our wild places. We have an excellent network of public footpaths, but they are mere threads across the canvas of our country. A public right-of-way is literally just that, a right to make one's way from A to B but not to do anything else along the way, and heaven forbid that that should include lying down and sleeping. As I write this, a millionaire hedge fund manager who owns a 4,000-acre estate on Dartmoor to accompany his 16,000 acres in Scotland is challenging the wild camping provisions in the Dartmoor Commons Act, the last vestige of land in all of England and Wales where wild camping is officially tolerated. Scotland filled me with a passion for the countryside and an understanding of my responsibilities to tread lightly. This then set me off on adventures into the expansive freedom of lands where you can pretty much go where you like, so long as you're able to take care of yourself and move safely through the environment. Siberia, Yukon, Alaska, Oman, Patagonia, even the frozen surface of the Arctic Ocean. These are places where you can feel part of a landscape at best, but certainly never a master. It is perhaps not a surprise that I've subsequently found living in the crowded southeast of England to be claustrophobic. I find it jarring to live in a culture that does not connect with the land in ways I have always taken for granted. This has played a large part in me making few friends and having little sense of belonging. Nobody I know here would consider running across miles of open ground for the fun of it, swim in a river at sunrise, camp on a hill, or make coffee in a wood. Barely anyone, except dog walkers, even uses the footpaths, let alone laments how limited their access is. And yet, despite the dearth of tree-huggers or cross-country runners, I've never seen so many intimidating keep-out signs festooned across a landscape nor so many piles of dumped rubbish. When people don't feel responsibility towards the land, I'm not surprised a few are inclined to drop litter and leave gates open. 
If landowners are restricting access in order to keep their land clean and pleasant, it's not working. As I tried this year to survey my map more thoroughly than just following the official paths, I was surprised by how much the issue of access impacted on the experience. How could I learn to love this landscape if I wasn't allowed within it? How would I be motivated to care for the natural world if I did not feel part of it? I had always assumed roaming across the countryside was an inherently normal thing, like breathing, until I began to get to know this map. I had caused no one inconvenience or harm today, and yet I was trespassing, and I didn't like how that made me feel. I didn't believe I was doing anything wrong, but I have been conditioned to believe that trespassing is naughty, and therefore I should feel guilt, not pleasure, at being here. Signs threatening that trespassers will be prosecuted are mostly meaningless. Trespass is a civil rather than a criminal matter, so long as you don't damage any property. I decided over this year to do my best not to be flustered by aggressive signs, to explore with consideration and care, but also a degree of freedom. If anyone got angry with me, I tried to have a polite chat about it and then heed the perennial wisdom of Three Men in a Boat, written way back in 1899. The proper course to pursue is to offer your name and address and leave the owner, if he really has anything to do with the matter, to summon you and prove what damage you have done to his land by sitting down on a bit of it. <laughs> and so, whether or not I was in these woods illegally, I continued up the path. I knew that if anyone challenged me, I would most likely be able to smile, chat and bumble my way out of any problems anyway. I also knew that I might be treated differently if I was a person of colour or a woman. In that sense, the outdoors is still not equally accessible to all of us, whether commoner, landowner or of other ethnic or socio-economic groups. I had been voyaging around my map for 10 weeks now, which meant I'd covered just 10 of its 400 grid squares, a paltry 2.5%. The vastness of my small map was becoming ever more apparent. Each week I discovered unknown places in what I had considered to be a largely familiar landscape. I would wager I know this map's paths better than most, and yet it was clear now how little I really knew and that I was seeing the place almost as if for the very first time. It made me appreciate the ancient network of paths that helped to guide me over the area. Almost every footpath on my map has been there for centuries. Some have been walked for an astonishing 7,000 years since their origins as connections between Bronze Age encampments. These ancient greenways tend to follow the contours of the landscape. Then came the Roman routes, striding in efficient straight lines across England, moving troops and connecting infrastructure. After that were the Anglo-Saxons, settling down, working the land and establishing many of our current towns and villages. It feels precious to walk in those long chains of footprints. A new movement, Slowways, is creating a national network of walking routes connecting thousands of Britain's towns, cities and villages. There are already more than 8,000 slowways stretching for more than 120,000 kilometres 
created by online volunteers. You can join in at www.slowways.org. Our footpaths have a magnificent history, yet 49,000 miles of them are due to disappear in England and Wales unless action is taken. The government has set a cut-off date of 2031, after which any unclaimed rights of way will disappear forever. Reinstating them would boost our path network by a third. The Ramblers Association urgently needs online volunteers to help to apply for these thousands of miles of paths to be restored, protecting them for generations to come. I left the wood and pedalled past a pair of pale blue shepherd's huts to a compact 14th century church and churchyard. Gravestones stir my imagination and I enjoy meandering among them. I calculate people's ages, feel sad about those who died young, look for my birthday among the dates, pause at those who died around my age and think about all those couples reunited at last. Today, there was Mick, Michael Miller, lost, not forgot, with a statue of a fat, smiling Buddhai in this Christian graveyard. Buddhai is often called the Laughing Buddha, but he was actually a 10th century Chinese monk, beloved of children and the poor for giving out sweets and snacks from his sack. There were well-tended plots with little white railings, heaps of flowers and photos of mum and gran. There was Bill and his old sweetheart Jean. Danny's gravestone celebrated that he enriched our lives with his courage, humour, goodness and love. A real nice guy. A tragedy then that he died at the age of just 31. Another epitaph read, He that wins knows no quitting. A rain-soaked envelope was addressed, To my darling Neil, the writing smudged like teary mascara. I imagined the contents of the letter. Perhaps things left too long unsaid, a broken heart, regrets, apologies, or consoling memories. A fresh grave was mounded high with dark earth and covered with red roses and white lilies. A note lay on the flowers. Thank you for 61 happy years together. Goodbye, my love. Even in a graveyard, our stories don't live forever. They are places of imminence, but not permanence. I found upright headstones, flat or curbed ones, and table tombs. They were polished, part polished, honed or pitched. But farther down the rows, they were faded, moss-covered, and then fallen over, with each story fading away and eventually forgotten. Older tombstones had been ensnared by green fingers of ivy that climbed and entwined and reclaimed as the wild world marches remorselessly over our fleeting presence. Ivy is clingy, luscious and misunderstood, with an exaggerated reputation for strangling trees and cracking buildings. Ivy has its own root system, so isn't parasitic, and its evergreen, woody tangle supports around 50 species of wildlife. It used to be said that a wreath of the plant would stop you getting drunk, hence the god Bacchus wearing his wreath of ivy and grapevines. I wondered why, if I like graveyards, do I hope my ashes are one day sprinkled into a swift stream or tossed into waves on a sunny morning and that will be the end of it and everyone will go home with a smile to get on with their lives. 
In the words of American writer Brian Doyle, these memories do not make me sad or nostalgic, but rather thrilled and happy that I had those hours. No man ever savoured those hours in the game more than I did. No man in the history of the world. And rather than sigh at their loss, I sing at their gain. Birdsong is easier to single out in winter than at noisier times of the year. All I had heard today were the usual robins boisterously defending their patch, blackbirds indignant flurries, and wood pigeons repeating over and over their plaintive cry of My toe hurts, Betty. My toe hurts, Betty. Then a sudden burst of birdsong in a hedge caught my attention. It was a raucous outburst of disagreement between half a dozen missile thrushes. According to the Merlin app, a genius tool for identifying birds by their sound. Sure enough, the chunky pale birds bounded out of the hedgerow across a soggy ploughed field and then flew to perch at the top of tall trees and continue their fluty song. From looking at my map beforehand, I'd expected that today would be a free roam through woods and empty fields. But most of the land belonged to a country house and had been fenced off for horse livery. Public footpaths feel a cop-out when they're tightly fenced, as though the letter of the law has been grudgingly heeded, but very much not the spirit. Rather than helping me to enjoy the countryside, these paths were just funnelling me to go somewhere, anywhere, but not here. Move along, please, there's nothing to see here. I sat on a log in a wood to drink my soup. I thought about how I'd rushed to get here today, how dissonant it was to be hurrying and clamouring to get into the stillness and calm of the countryside. Forcing myself to slow down helped me resist trying to make an adventure out of something whose most important meaning is altogether more intimate and homely, as Richard Maybe put it in the unofficial countryside. This was at odds with the way I've pursued most journeys in my life. Maybe's pursuit of that intimate and homely sense, which I interpreted as a sense of belonging and connection, was more likely to be caught in lunch hour strolls, weeds found in a garden corner, a bird glimpsed through a bus window. It was a change in focus that was needed, a new perspective on the everyday. In The Runner, Marcus Torgiby wrote, I must do something about my restlessness. One day, I put on several layers of clothes, sit down on a tree stump and do nothing. I must get over this hurdle. I must learn how to do nothing. I decided to give it a try myself today, here in my grid square. That time on the stump, Torgaby concluded, was a good investment. Life became greater after that. Food tasted better, and the song of the birds in the woods was even lovelier. Spending time alone in nature is a staple part of outward-bound training for young people in the United States. The extended wilderness solo experience, as it is known, derives from ancient traditions. Moses, Jesus and Buddha, as well as Gandhi, John Muir, Thoreau and Alexander Supertrump all went into the wild in search of understanding and transformation. It has been an element of many societies' initiation rituals and helps them to clarify their strengths and purpose. 
Today, aspects of these experiences have become part of wilderness therapy and outdoor education. Silence plays an important role in our development, and wilderness solo experiences can help counter the loneliness, stress and depression of modern lifestyles. I spend a lot of time alone, but almost none of it sitting still without distractions. So I would start today with just one hour. Attempting even that felt somewhat daunting as I switched my phone to airplane mode and set an alarm to rescue me in 60 minutes, if I stuck it out that long, which I doubted I would. I sat down on a log and waited. With pen and paper in hand, I would gladly sip coffee and sit on a stump all day. Give me a book to read and it would be my dream holiday. But with no way to record my thoughts, I was left with the gentle maelstrom of nonsense inside my head for company. There was no escape. One hour on a wet log involved me racking up a dozen practical plans and a handful of emotional mood swings, while every minute involved observing something new in the wood around me. I was bored. I fidgeted. Nothing happened. Minutes dragged. I scratched my back. I thought about giving up. I needed to pee. My brain was in overdrive, yet I also dozed off for brief moments. I pondered how odd it was that I think the world of woodland and birdsong, but now that I was here, I wanted to go home and tweet about it instead. Most animal species have about a billion heartbeats in an average lifespan. It's up to me whether I expend mine feeling uptight about things beyond my control or by savouring the everyday nature around me and doing what I can to change what I can. Every hour is a substantial chunk of time and too precious to waste. The wonderful summer shriek of swifts will one day go out of my hearing range. I will put down my child one day and never pick them up again. I must not waste my minutes. To my surprise, when the alarm eventually sounded, my first emotion was of disappointment rather than relief. Sitting on a log for 60 minutes had been a surprisingly cathartic experience. From feeling flustered about the shortness of time and how little I was achieving, it was reassuring to have watched an hour flow out before me like a river and to have chosen to be okay with that. Settling in for a second hour would have been far easier. I felt relaxed and buoyed and resolved to return to my sit spot and try this again soon. As the monk Thomas Merton reflected upon meditation and solitude, Nothing can be said that has not already been said better by the wind in the pine trees.